0: All right, we are back, and I'm going to push. I'm going to push our pal Will Durst to the end of this segment because there's an item from the political scene that we just need to get to. I put it off week after week, but I just have to quote from this item off of Yahoo News. I've been sitting on since June 9th. Article by uh, John Cook, as follows: Alvin Green's been on the phone all day. That's to be expected for the guy who just won South Carolina's Democratic Senate primary and is facing incumbent Republican Jim DeMint in November. But everyone calling Green has just been trying to find out who the heck he is. The one thing reporters learned Tuesday is that a criminal complaint was sworn out against him last year for allegedly showing obscene photos to a South Carolina college student and suggesting they go to her dorm room. Green, a 32-year-old unemployed military veteran who lives with his parents, defeated Vic Rawl on Tuesday for the Democratic Senate nomination, despite having run essentially no public campaign, no events, no signs, no debates, no website, no fundraising. The result has baffled political observers who had heavily favored Rawl, a former state legislator, attorney, and prosecutor who had the edge in as much as he actually campaigned and tried to win. Many in South Carolina, which has grandly lived up to its reputation as a political circus this year, suspect that somewhere a crafty GOP political operative is snickering. Now, I don't know. We don't like to encourage speculation on this program. By the way, I love the quote in Newsweek a few months ago about (laughs) about Alvin Green. Apparently, when asked uh, how he would get the economy in South Carolina jump-started, he said, Make toys of me. But uh, the article goes on. As far as the local political press can discern, the only positive step Green took toward campaigning was when he plunked down a $10,400 check in March to satisfy the state's filing fee and get on the ballot. He has never registered a campaign committee with the Federal Election Commission or filed a financial disclosure with the Senate Ethics Committee. So why did he run and how did he win? (laughs) Said Green, I campaigned. It was a low-budget campaign. I funded it 100% out of my own pocket and kept it simple. It was old-fashioned. Asked what precisely that campaign consisted of and how much he spent on it, Green demurred. Not much, he said. I had friends helping me. Yes, we have our suspicions it was friends like the late Lee Atwater who helped Mr. Green. By the way, I'm dying to talk about that that documentary, Boogeyman, the Lee Atwater story. Mr. Atwater was himself a South Carolinian, at first a protege of the late Strom Thurmond, and after elbowing, if not knifing his way to the, uh, the role of chief political operative for the Republican Party in 1988, changed the American political landscape. Running the campaign of the widely disliked wuss Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush, Lee Atwater decided to take down Michael Dukakis using the flag salute, flag burning, and Willie Horton. And along the way, instructed a couple of uh, young, up-and-coming political operatives named Karl Rove and George W. Bush on the fine art of political knife fighting. More than anyone else, Lee Atwater is responsible for the 12 years of Bush presidencies. No, we don't know if someone with a Ouija board is channeling the late Lee Atwater to, uh, (laughs) to run the Alvin Green campaign, but it's as good a theory as any. But to go back to the Yahoo News article, Green's candidacy has raised suspicions that he may have been induced to run by Republican operatives in order to sow dissension in the Democratic ranks. Hmm, why, that is possible. It's not uncommon in South Carolina for Republicans to c- recruit African-American challengers to run against white frontrunners in Democratic primaries in the hope of drumming up racial tensions. Note of the article, green is black. These straw candidates aren't supposed to win. They're just supposed to create a racially divisive primary to damage the candidate's ability to put together a coalition in the general election. This is why, as reported on this program a couple years back, I guess it was in 2008, Republican operative Roger Stone, himself of the Lee Atwater School, spent $20 million to try and convince Democrats that Al Sharpton was a viable candidate. Let's repeat that quote from the article. It's not uncommon in South Carolina for Republicans to recruit African-American challengers to run against white frontrunners in Democratic primaries in the hope of drumming up racial tensions. The blog slash article continues. Green's success is a testament both to the lackluster quality of the campaign run by Rawl, who raised $186,000 and ran ads, and to the, um, peculiar voting habits of South Carolinians. Chris, we would like to add one other possibility. South Carolina was one of the leaders in electronic vote counting. In fact, it does appear that thanks to voting machines they've been able to to phony up elections in South Carolina at breakneck speed and there's an added advantage, you can't do a recount. We need to bring Greg Palace back on the show. First question will be, what do you think about Bill Richardson and Billy the Kid? I think if we start with that, I can just sit back and let let Palace go for 20 straight minutes. Anyway, we we like to discourage wagering on this program. But if you do, feel the need to make political bets, I would say that putting your money on Republican Jim DeMint in South Carolina in November is probably a good bet. Which, of course, was undoubtedly the idea all along, eh? And uh, speaking of uh, idiocy in the Democratic Party, let's hear from our good pal Will Durst now rather than later. Hey guys,
1: Will Durst here to talk about another ugly election year mess twining up the legs of the Democrats like an anaconda in the primary stages of a goat swallow. They call it conflict of interest, which is the queer politician's polite way of saying crookeder than a dump truck full of bicycle spokes caught in a tugboat's turbine.
0: Usually nobody
1: bribes a Democrat because, well, they can't get anything done. Like handing a couch cushion to an eggplant. And when you do give them money, they don't know what to do with it. They put it in the freezer for crumbs' sake. But Charles Rangel and Maxine Waters are not your ordinary Democrats. They know what to do with it. After 12 years of wandering in the wilderness, Nancy Pelosi said after taking back Congress in 2006 that she was going to drain the swamp. See, the problem is, once you do that, those big old alligators got no place to hide. Waters is a 10-term congressman, and Rangel served for over 40 years. And they would rather take their own party down than walk away from the cash cows they affectionately refer to as public service. Both are being investigated by the oxymoronic-sounding House Committee on Standards of Official Conduct and could have escaped with a slap on the wrist, but are demanding public trials. And they'll get them in September, two months before the general election, which the Democrats need the same way an ice sculptor needs a 12-piece votive candle set in the shape of the characters from The Lord of the Rings. Republicans are herd animals, like their mascot the elephant, and know enough not to do anything that'll hurt the tribe. The donkeys, or asses, are principally known for their stubbornness, a demonstration of which is now in session. Ah, Democrats. They may not have invented the circular firing squad, but you gotta admit, they certainly perfected it. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst.
0: Hard to uh, disagree with, Mr. Durst. You do have to wonder sometimes how the Democrats did get their political symbol. (laughs) All right, speaking of politics and stupidity, and I guess we are, how about this one? Uh, They're now saying that on second thought, all that oil in the Gulf of Mexico, why, most of it may still be around. Gee, we were so reassured last week when they told us that three-quarters of it was just gone. Of course, we're going to keep uh, following that story as it unfolds, but we'd like to refer you to the opinion-slash-interview in New Scientist magazine, the July 10th issue, where uh, marine biologist, seabed explorer, and former top U.S. government scientist Sylvia Earle explained why she was angry about the methods being used to clean up the Gulf oil spill. Sylvia Earle does have some interesting credentials. In 1970, she led a team of all-female Aquanauts, a mixed team was apparently deemed too controversial, to live for two weeks in an enclosed habitat on the ocean floor where they conducted studies on seabed life. She's lived underwater on nine different occasions and has logged nearly 7,000 hours under the surface. She's had a lifelong devotion to the study and conservation of the seas. And notes that in 1989, she saw firsthand the catastrophic effects of oil spilt when the supertanker Exxon Valdez ran aground in Prince William Sound. Notes New Scientist, pleas she made at the time for stiffer penalties for oil companies to prevent anything similar ever happening again, seem to have had little effect. In 1991, as the Chief Scientist at the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, Earl led a study of the Persian Gulf after retreating Iraqi forces unleashed the largest marine oil spill in history. What worries her most about the current spill are the unknown effects of the dispersant chemicals used to break up oil into small droplets that sink into the water column. She said, quote, "...if they put dispersants into any body of water without the presence of oil, people would be up in arms about the release of such toxic substances." But because they're being applied in the name of remediation, people stand by and say, it's okay, but it isn't okay at all. It's making the Gulf a big experiment with no baseline to judge the real consequences. Article notes federal government biologists who approve the use of dispersants say that chemicals are the lesser of two evils. They are toxic to some extent, but they keep the oil from reaching sensitive wetland habitat along the coast. When uh, the writer Phil McKenna, who wrote this article, asked Earl about this, he said she replied that aside from the limited use of dispersants to protect specific marshes from approaching slicks, she will have none of it. He said, quote, Deploying dispersants at the wellhead and on the surface many miles from shore is shockingly irresponsible. It means you're taking oil that could be collected on the surface and causing it to go where it's impossible to recover. She did note that she understands the political pressures on federal scientists. As a NOAA official, she had the job of defending the government policy of supporting factory trawlers, even though as a scientist she opposed them. She said, said, quote, They started calling me the Sturgeon General because I was speaking for the fish, not the fishermen." Frustrated by her inability to speak freely as an independent scientist, she resigned from NOAA after just two years. You know, we've had some experience with that on this program. We're going to have a friend of mine of almost four decades duration come on this show to talk about some issues uh, down in the delta, and uh, he said he'd have to clear it with his NOAA superiors. Politics, man, it's everywhere. And uh, let's talk. Let's talk about things oceanic for a moment. On a happier note, uh, this correspondent traveled down to Monterey Bay. With the idea, of perhaps, going out and looking at the whales, which apparently are feasting on krill, but when I find out when I found out you got to go about 15 miles out to see them, and ran rent a boat and all that, I'd like to just to kayak in the Elkhorn Slough instead, which turns out to have been a pretty good choice. Uh, we saw at one point a raft of at least 30 sea otters, maybe more. I tried to get a count, but it was hard to confuse heads and feet sometimes. <laughs> At any rate, there were otters all over the place, far more than I've ever seen anywhere. Well, anywhere meaning the Monterey Bay area. If you take a kayak and paddle off Cannery Row, you will see quite a few. But uh, the the congregation we saw at the mouth of the Elkhorn Slough had to represent, I don't know, 1% of the world population. There uh, were also uh, seals and sea lions galore and a couple different types of pelicans, if you don't own a kayak, you can go rent one uh, uh, there at the Elkhorn Slough in Monterey Bay, and I, I, I would recommend you do so. My original idea, pursuant to something I mentioned on this program was before, was to go and try and paddle a long distance. My idea was Capitola to, uh, to the Elkhorn Slough area. When I suggested that to my friend Gordon, he said, Why don't we try paddling around the slough first? We did uh, make a second foray out into the bay and went up against the current for a while and paddled back. And I vow to you, dear listener, that I will have a report on a trip from Capitola to the Moss Landing, Elkhorn Slough area before this summer is out. But after hanging out with a friend of mine in Capitola, Deb, she did send me an email which noted that uh, I guess the day before, I was down there looking around for some kayaking routes. Uh, A kayak was bitten by a great white shark just off the San Mateo coast. The following is apparently obtained from Adam Coca's written description of what happened off Pigeon Point. I was south of Bean Hollow Beach. I stopped to fish in about 30 feet of water when I felt the shark strike the nose of my boat from below, like boom, then kaboom. It flipped the boat over and I was halfway in the water. The shark was chewing on the bow of my boat while swimming in a circle. We must have done about three or four circles like that with the shark pushing and chewing on my boat. I was finally able to climb atop my boat while the shark continued to chew on the nose. My boat is 13 feet in length and the shark was at least that long, maybe longer. The great white shark became entangled in my leash and might have been distracted by the flailing paddle, which it did bite and sever my leash. The shark submerged and disappeared. I flipped my boat over and jumped in and hung on to the rails and braced myself waiting for the next strike, which never came. I'd made a distress distress call on my VHF radio, which brought other kayakers to my location quickly. They helped me collect my floating gear that had been dislodged from the kayak when it flipped over. The bite marks on the bottom of the boat measured 18 inches at the widest portion of the arc, and the individual tooth marks were about 2 inches apart. Well, Deb, I... I want to thank you for that email. Yeah, all right. You know the sharks are out there; they're part of nature. Things happen. I'm still gonna paddle from Capitola down to Moss Landing. All right, a a much more serious threat regarding our oceans. Uh, God, this is this is really this is these are two actually very depressing items, but we gotta do them. Apparently, researchers at Canada's Dalhousie University have analyzed a century's worth of records and satellite imagery which apparently can can track concentrations of chlorophyll in the ocean. Chlorophyll, obviously, is the green pigment that phytoplankton use in photosynthesis. Now, you might not think that little uh, one-celled photosynthetic uh, uh, plankton in the ocean could be that important, but they actually produce more oxygen, and uh, fix more CO2 than all the forests and grasslands of the Earth's terrestrial environment. And the bad news, according to these Canadian scientists, is that phytoplankton are in steep declines. Their results suggest that the the phytoplankton populations worldwide have dropped 1% a year since 1900, and 40% overall since 1950. Marine scientist and lead author Daniel Boyce calls it a shocking decline. The temperature of the oceans is rising, and in warmer water, there's less movement of rich nutrients from deep in the sea to the surface, making it less hospitable to the growth of phytoplankton. Everything in the ocean either eats phytoplankton or eats what eats them. So obviously, their dwindling means less food for fish and fewer fish for people. And of course, <laughs> that isn't even remotely the worst of it as mentioned phytoplankton also help capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and generate as much oxygen as all the trees and plants on land as the number of phytoplankton decline more co2 stays airborne warming the world further and wiping out even more phytoplankton said co-author boris verm It will be one of the biggest biological changes in recent times, simply because of its scale. You know, traveling a couple years ago, I read uh, The Revenge of Gaia by James Lovelock, in which he sort of explained in exquisite detail that, uh, although we don't think about this, the oceans and the land are opposites in the respect of, you know, where you find the most diverse and productive ecosystems. On land, it's the tropics. Tropical waters, on the other hand, are far from the most productive. The world's great fisheries are located in cold water. The reason's pretty simple. Cold water sinks. And in sinking brings up water from below. And the water from below has concentrations of minerals in it. The minerals are needed by the phytoplankton. When they, in effect, get fertilized and multiply and grow, they are the foundation of the food chain. If the earth heats up even a little bit, this stabilizes the uh, column of water all around the world, prevents mixing, and then, yes, causes crashes of the population of phytoplankton. This is bad news, folks. And fortunately, uh, corroborating this bad news is the following item from Yahoo News and LiveScience.com. Apparently one of the most destructive and swift coral bleaching events ever recorded is currently underway in the waters off Indonesia, where temperatures have climbed into the low 90s, according to data released by a conservation group. The Wildlife Conservation Society says a dramatic rise in sea temperature, potentially, potentially, it says, linked to global warming, is responsible for the devastation. Initial surveys in May revealed that more than 60% of the corals in the area were bleached, which means, you know, dead. Notes the article, Subsequent monitoring of the Indonesian corals completed in early August revealed one of the most rapid and severe coral mortality events ever recorded. The scientists found that 80% of some species have died since the initial assessment, and more colonies are expected to die within the next few months. As uh, the world warms, we're going to see more varied Uh, climates in various locations around the world. Apparently the jet stream kind of parked in one spot over Asia the last few months. This has resulted in both the heat waves and fires that are currently plaguing Russia, as well as the uh, catastrophic flooding that's hit Pakistan. The Pakistani flooding is being described as worse than the Haitian earthquake, Hurricane Katrina, and the... Indian Ocean tsunami combined. Anyway, our view on this program is that uh, even if we don't have a solution to some things going on, it helps to at least have the correct diagnosis. can tell you from my experience in medicine, having the correct diagnosis increases your chance of finding a cure. So anyway, before we go to break, let's do one final hair-raising article. Article from the Christian Science Monitor. July 15th of this year. I love the headline Earth's Upper Atmosphere Collapses. Nobody Knows Why. To quote from the text An upper layer of Earth's atmosphere recently collapsed in an unexpectedly large contraction, the sheer size of which has scientists scratching their heads, NASA announced Thursday. The layer of gas called the thermosphere is now rebounding. This type of collapse is not rare. But its magnitude shocked scientists, said John Emmert of the Naval Research Lab. This is the biggest contraction of the thermosphere in at least 43 years. It's a space age record, said Emmert. Something is going on we do not understand. Apparently we can't blame gases in the atmosphere and we can't blame solar activity and nobody's sure what the hell's going on. And I know I don't, so I'm going to leave it at that and take a break. We'll have to return to that one in some future installment. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got more. Don't go away.